0: And let's again just go before the Lord and ask him to bless our time studying his word tonight. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that we are not studying simply a historical record, but we're studying spiritual truth. And We're not studying something, Lord, that just simply has power in the intellect, but has power to change lives. For you spoke in the beginning, light be and light was. And Lord, as you speak these things into our hearts and into our lives, Lord, they have power to change and transform us. And so it's our desire and prayer tonight, Lord, that the things that we hear from your word, these eternal impacting testimonies, Lord, that they would reach deep into our hearts and that our lives would be brought in perfect harmony with your will and your desire for us as we see what you say, Lord, so long ago, but yet it lives today. So please, Lord, bless this time and bless your word. Give us an attentive heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When God made man in the beginning, the Bible tells us that all things were good. And there was one command that God gave to Adam in the garden, one thing that he was not to do. He was told that he was not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He could eat freely from all the trees of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, he was not to eat. But we know the story that Adam disobeyed that one command that God had given to him. And Adam ate from that tree. And in so doing, he brought a curse upon all of mankind. And when God was telling Adam what the consequences of that curse would be, he said that the earth will now bring forth thorns and briars to you that it will be in the sweat of your brow that you will cause the earth to bud and to bring forth. It's no longer going to be easy for you, but the time that you live upon the earth is going to be in difficulty. There will be affliction. And thus, from that time, there has always been for man, Adam and his descendants, even to the present day, adversity. And there have always been enemies that you and I face as we walk through this world, both as unsaved and after that we are saved, we face adversity. And there are enemies that we fight, that we battle against. Now, the three great enemies of the saint, of the person who believes in God, throughout all the ages have been, first of all, the devil. That's right. The serpent who beguiled Eve and tempted her to partake of that fruit. And the devil has always hated man because he hates God. And because man is made in the image of God, therefore our enemy hates us. We also have a destiny to be one with God, the atonement. We are in Christ. And that's a position that Satan could never have hoped for even before he fell. And for that reason, he envies man. And so there's double hatred made in the image of God. And also, we are destined to occupy a position that he himself coveted. And thus, Satan hates man. He's our sworn enemy, always has been, always will be the enemy of man. The second enemy that man always faces, especially save man, is that of the world. You see, when Satan tricked Adam and Eve, they lost control of authority over the planet that God had given to them. Satan took control of it at that time. Thus the world and its systems are under his influence continually. Jesus called him the God of this world. Paul called him the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world. He's the one that orders the affairs of the things that go on around us, and thus he or it, the world, is the enemy of God's people. The third enemy is much worse. The third enemy the Bible calls our own flesh. Now when sin entered the world and thus sin entered into man, man's nature became conductive or magnetic to sin. We are drawn by our fallen nature to sinful things. And thus, our flesh feeds off of the very thing that seeks to destroy it. And thus we discover not long after walking with Christ, after being born again, that there's an enemy that lives inside of every one of us. It's our fallen nature, the flesh. And so to sum it up, we have an enemy strategist, Satan, who's always plotting, planning, seeking our demise. We are in enemy territory. We're in a world that's not friendly to our cause and to our Christ. And we are prey to, often, enemy appetites. That is, in our very flesh are things that would seek to harm us and seek to destroy us. And thus, God's people are in a constant war. That's where we are. It's where we stand. We're always dealing with enemies. Now, lest you should be discouraged about the fact of the matter, once you're in Christ, the outlook of that battle changes completely. We still face enemies in battles, but the Bible says that he, our Christ that lives in us, that he is far above all principality and power. He's more powerful than the forces that are against us. The Bible tells us that the enemy is already subdued under his feet and submitted to him. He cannot, our enemy, go one step further than what God in his sovereignty allows. The Bible also tells us that no weapon that is formed against us shall prosper. That the gates of hell, that is the strategy room, the situation room in hell, shall not prevail against us. And Jesus promised us that when we walk on the narrow path, we are completely untouchable, unreachable. That Satan's grasp cannot go beyond the boundaries of our narrow path. And so though we fight, the Bible declares that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now. As we've moved through the Old Testament history, following the children of Israel, we've seen that they've always had enemies. In the book of Joshua, we saw it was the Canaanites that they had to face. We got into the book of Judges, it was the Moabites and the Ammonites that they were fighting with constantly. In the book of Samuel, first and second, the life of David and Solomon, it was the Philistines, their sworn enemy. In 2 Kings earlier on, we saw that it was the Moabites again, the enemy of Israel. And now as we pick up in the middle of Elisha's ministry in chapter 6, verse 8, we see them again being afflicted, drawn into battle with their enemies. This time, it's the Syrians. But as we see tonight, a very clear picture of how God protects his people in this largely invisible war. See, our war, though theirs was outward in the flesh, our war is invisible in the spirit. We don't see our enemies oftentimes. We feel the effects of the battle. We feel the effects of their blows. But we can't see what's going on. It's an invisible war. So how do you fight an invisible battle? Tonight, as we see how God supernaturally protected his people in their physical battle, we also gain insight into how we become more than conquerors in this spiritual and invisible battle that we find ourselves in. And so we pick up in verse 8 of chapter 6. It says, And then the king of Syria warred against Israel. And he took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And so right off the bat, we see an aggressor, Or an aggressor enemy, this king of Syria who seeks the demise or the destruction of God's people. We see that there's a conference. He took counsel with his servants. And in that conference, they made a plan. He said, in such and such a place will be my camp. That's where we're going to set our staging area to forge the battle. And the man of God, verse 9, sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you pass not such a place. For thither the Syrians are come down and the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of and saved himself there not once or twice. And so the aggressor who conferred and planned is then met with the man of God, Elisha, who then brings a warning to the king of Israel, who in heeding that warning delivers himself time and again from the plan of the Syrian king who seeks to destroy Israel. Well, that's met with frustration. Notice verse 11. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. And he called his servants and he said unto them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, Not my lord, O king, but Elisha. The prophet that is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words which you speak even in your bedchamber. So the king of Syria realizes at this point that there's an uneven playing field, that there's intelligence being given to the king of Israel supernaturally and that no secret can be hid from him and therefore he has no chance in the battle. What we have here is we have a picture of deliverance through obedience. The king of Syria in the story, he represents our enemy, Satan, the master strategist, the one who watches our moves. He sees the things that we do. He can't touch us, but he watches. He takes notes as he observes our life. And then he makes a plan. He sets an ambush. He watches the things that we do, and he says, I know how I'll trip them up. And when they pass through this place, which is their very tendency, after I tempt them, I'll be able to take them down completely. Elisha in the story, he's a picture of our Savior, the one who sees. The faithful shepherd who's always one step ahead and aware of everything that both the enemy is doing, but even more so, what we are doing. Able to see what's going on. Well, the king of Israel, he's a picture of God's people. He's the leader and the representative of them. And so Elisha communicates the message to the king, and thus the king and his army is delivered from the hand of the enemy, and thus the people cannot be touched by the king of Syria. It's interesting to me that Elisha doesn't disclose the whole plan of the king of Syria to the king of Israel. He doesn't say, hey, he has set up an array for you in this, time. he just simply says, don't pass by such and such a place. He gives to him essentially a one-word warning. He says, don't go there. That's what he says. Don't go there and you'll be fine. And it says that he delivered himself not once or twice by heeding the warning that was given to him by the man of God. Now that's exactly what Jesus does for us as he seeks to deliver us from the ambush of Satan. So often he gives us a one-word warning that he uses or hopes will be enough for us that we be delivered from the onslaught that he's planning. 1 Corinthians 6.18, the Bible says, flee sexual immorality, fornication in the King James Bible, that is sexual activity outside the bond of marriage. In Hebrews 13.5, the Bible says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with the things that you have. The Bible says in Timothy to endure affliction and chastisement as coming from the Lord and don't look for a detour or a detraction when you find yourself in a time of affliction or a time of pain or being chastened by the Lord. The Bible says in Ephesians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 6.14, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, whether it be for marriage purposes or for money making purposes. Don't get too mixed up with unbelievers in the planning and the staging for your life. And the Bible says in Ephesians 5.18, not to be drunk with wine or don't open the door for addiction if you wanted to spread it into the realm of other intoxicants. What is that? It's a one word warning. It's Jesus saying, hey, listen, there's an ambush that your enemy has set up for you in certain areas. And if you steer clear of them, if you don't go there, then you'll deliver yourself not once or twice. So often people think that the reason God says don't do things is because he doesn't want us to have fun. Because he's against our flesh and the things that we desire deep down inside. And so he's, lest we should enjoy ourselves or have any fun in life, he says don't do this and don't do that. Not so. He knows that the tendency of our flesh is to gravitate towards those things. He knows that Satan will use those tendencies to tempt us using the world as his allurement. And if he can get us to bite the bait or fall into that ambush, then he can bring us into bondage and he can make ruins of our lives. And the paths of this world are strong with the carcasses of those that have fallen into the pitfalls and the ambushes that Satan has set up along the way because of people not heeding the one word warning of our Savior. And so we see that as the king of Israel just heeds the warning that's given to him in the word of the Lord, he delivers himself from destruction. And thus, Jesus gives to us a one word warning. He says, don't. Sometimes he says, do. But if we heed the warning that he gives, we find that we're delivered from the onslaught of the enemy. Well, the enemy is frustrated. And I can't help but think of Job in this. Remember the book of Job? And remember when God was boasting on Job in the presence of Satan? And Satan was saying, I've gone throughout the world seeking to devour whom I can. And God said, have you considered my servant Job, that he loves righteousness, that he hates evil, that he doesn't curse my name, that he's faithful to me? And Satan's reply was interesting. He said, yeah, but you've set a hedge around him and I can't touch him. See, Satan left out the part that the hedge that God had put up for him is the same hedge God puts up for everyone. What did God say? He said he loves righteousness and he hates evil. Hey, anyone who loves righteousness and hates evil is not going to be in the reach of our enemy. Because if you walk the narrow path that leads to life, Satan can't touch you. That's why it's the narrow path that leads to life. And so Satan said, let me at him and he'll curse you to your face. Why was there a head around, around him? Because he heeded the one word warning. And so Satan was frustrated, and here the king of Israel, I'm sorry, the king of Syria is frustrated because he can't get to the king of Israel because uh, of what um, Elisha is telling the king of Israel. Very interesting. I also see in this that God also gives deliverance by our relationship with him. It's impossible to win a battle when the defense always knows the offense's strategy. If you always know what your aggressor is going to do, then you don't let the aggressor get to you. And the interesting thing is that you and I, in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we have access to the same type of intelligence that the king of Israel got from Elisha. See, we go to the Lord Jesus and he tells us what the plan of our enemy is. He does it through his word. As you read the word of God, you realize that Satan has a very small playbook. He uses the same things every time. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so you learn what his offense is, and you can deliver yourself if you follow what Jesus teaches. He also tells us by the Spirit of God. He'll put an unction in our hearts, a drawing. He'll speak to us deep inside and and, and, and warn us about things that are going on, possible pitfalls and problems that are heading our way. And as we heed and as we relate to him, he delivers us through that. The same way the king of Israel uh, is delivered here. He also delivers us by confidence and prayer. Notice in verse 13. The king of, of, of Syria here gets frustrated. He says, man, as long as Elisha is alive, I've got no hope of getting at Israel. So he said, verse 13, go and spy where he is that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him saying, behold, he is in Dothan. So Dothan is halfway between Samaria, which was the capital where the king's palace was, and Mount Carmel, which was on the circuit that Elisha would make in his uh, teaching. And so therefore he sent there, the king of Syria, sent there horses and chariots, a great host. And they came by night and they compassed the city about. So they surround the entire city with a great host of the army. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots and his servant said unto him alas my master what shall we do so put yourself in the servant's shoes for a moment you wake up early and you go out of the tent which would most likely be his you know mode of of, of sleep at that point and you begin to walk around and Dothan wasn't a huge place And he sees that the whole city is surrounded by the Syrian army and that all spears and arrows are pointed right at the tent of Elisha, the direction of him. And the servant realizes that they're outnumbered by a lot. And so he goes back into the tent and he shakes Elisha awake and he says, what are we going to do? We're in big trouble here. And Elisha doesn't seem too troubled by it. It says in verse 16, it says that he answered, fear not. For they that be with us are more than they which be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. So the reality of the situation as the servant sees it with supernatural sight is that it isn't just that there's a Syrian army that's surrounding Elisha physically. But behind them and in front of them, because they're surrounding Elisha, is a heavenly host of chariots of fire and angelic soldiers that have the Syrian army surrounded. So where the servant just sees that Elisha and the servant are surrounded, Elisha sees that it's not him at all, that it's the Syrian army that's been surrounded and that he, in fact, himself is uh, safe. So what's going on here? We have A new conference and a new plan. The king wants to take out Elisha. And then we have the dreadful sight of the servant as he sees that they're surrounded. And what Elisha gives to that servant is a word and a revelation. The word is fear not because they that are with us are more than be with them. And the revelation is the reality of the situation that they, in fact, are safe because of the host of God that is around them. And so what's the cast of characters? Again, the king of Syria, a picture of Satan. Elisha, again, a picture of Christ. And the servant who can't see is a picture of you and me. How often, just like us, we only see the visible and the tangible that's going on in our lives and we make our assessments of a situation based upon what we can see going on around us. And so here's what it looks like. You're going through life, and you're just trying to obey God, and you're doing the best that you can, and you're trying to walk the narrow way, and you know you're not perfect. And all of a sudden, all at once, it seems like you're completely surrounded by the enemy. Every area and aspect of your life seems to be under attack. Economically, you find yourself going downhill. You're like, oh my goodness, what in the world is going on with our finances? The price of everything is going up. Income is staying the same or going down. Things are becoming more cutthroat and it's harder to get by what in the world are we going to do. And at the same time then you notice that things start to fail in your health or in the health of your family. And you realize that the expenses and the complications that are related to those things are, are vast, that they're enormous, seemingly insurmountable. And then at the same time you feel like, is, is the employment situation as stable as I think? Or maybe there's a threat that maybe it isn't. Or perhaps you find out that you've lost your job and all all together the whole bottom drops right out of it. And at the same time, you feel that your temptation level is just on the rise. That you feel that that the things, the lusts of your flesh are just pulling on you harder than they've ever pulled on you before in your life. And you feel like the pressure to buckle is, is, is almost unbearable. And then at the same time, your marriage is starting to feel the strain. And your family begins to strain. Your kids are starting to freak out. And, you know, all kinds of things. And it seems that all at once, there's just a compounding. And you say, I'm surrounded. I don't know what I'm going to do. Everything in life just feels like it's all going to fall apart. And you come to a point where you say, what in the world am I going to do, God? Well, what the Lord Jesus does for us is the same exact thing that Elisha did for his servant. He gave him, first of all, a word. What did he say? He said, fear not. Fear not. Did you know that in the King James Bible, that word combination is used 63 times? Just fear not. That doesn't include every time that it's implied or said in other ways. But just fear not is said 63 times throughout the Bible. That's once almost for every book of the Bible. And it's from Genesis to Revelation all throughout. The Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear. And God has called us, no matter where we find ourselves, at any point in our lives, in whatever situation we're in in our lives, to stand in a place where we fear not. And the reason that we're called to fear not is because, no matter what situation you're in in your life, they that are with you are more and more powerful than they which are against you. What Elisha said to the servant that was true in that day is always true for you and I, every day of our lives because god says that if he is for us then who can be against us and thus we always stand in the power of his might by his word and so he gives to us a word in the season that we feel like we're surrounded and he tells us not to fear the word goes on the bible says that no weapon that's formed against you will prosper The Bible says that the gates of hell will not prevail against you. The Bible says that nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ. Tribulation, peril, nakedness, the sword, nothing. The Bible says that he will never leave you or forsake you. And the Bible says that he is working all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And so he gives to us a word whereby we are called to stand in the time that we feel that we're surrounded by our enemy. Now we're called to stand upon that word in quiet confidence in what God said in spite of the situation while we wait for the revelation. What's the revelation? Well, for the servant, it was the fact that the angelic host was surrounding the Syrian army and that they were in fact safe. But for you and I, what that revelation is, is this. And that is, listen carefully, it is the actual truth about the situation that we find ourselves in. There is two truths in every situation. There is the apparent truth, and that is what things look like. And then there is the actual truth, and that is the reality of the situation. I can't help in that but to think of Jesus when he was sleeping in the boat during the storm. Remember when the disciples were there and they were toiling? And they were taking on more water than they could unload. And the boat was beginning to sink. The storm was beginning to overwhelm them while Jesus sat in the back of the boat fast asleep, unmoved by it. Now, the apparent truth in that situation was that they were perishing. And so they woke Jesus up and they said, Lord, we're perishing. How could you be asleep? How could you sleep in a time that we are dying? And everything that was in them believed that they were dying because they were looking at the apparent of what they could see. Now, the actual truth in that situation is that the one who controlled the waves, the water and the weather, was actually in the boat with them. And thus, once he woke up and he said, You guys have no faith. And he spoke and the storm subsided. The waves were in complete calm. And it says that the disciples marveled because they were in the presence of one who had authority even over the wind and the waves. Do you see the difference between an apparent truth and the actual truth? The apparent, we're dead, we're done. It's over, bankrupt, unemployed, on the street, sick, dead, gone. The actual truth may be way different. And so the revelation that we need in our circumstances is that we would see the situation from heaven's perspective and not just from the finite perspective that we have here on this earth. That's the difference in everything. And so Elisha gives a word and a revelation. That's what Jesus gives to us. He gives us a word first and he calls us to stand on it. And then wait and pray for the revelation as God would show to us exactly the truth of what is going on in the situation. So what do we do in the interim while we're waiting between the surrounding army and God showing us what's actually going on? You stand upon what he said in patient confidence that we are not the exception to 6,000 years of God's faithfulness. That if he's been faithful for 6,000 years to come through on his word for his people, then you're not the exception to that. And then pray for revelation and deliverance. The reality of the situation here is that they were safe, that they were about to see the miraculous, and that God was going to deliver them. And thus the deliverance came, verse 18. And so when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord. And he said, smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he, that is the Lord, smote them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. So can you imagine that? You're right there, and all of a sudden, Elisha says, blindness, and none of the whole army can see. They just, oh, all of a sudden, they're they're like zombies. They're trying to figure out, talk about the zombie apocalypse, you know. They're trying to figure out where they are. And so Elisha then said unto them, he doesn't stop there, he says, this is not the way neither is this the city, follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. Now, who they were actually seeking was the king of Israel, right? That's who the king of Syria wanted to take down. And so he says, I'll take you to the very guy that you're trying to find. You want the king, I'll take you to the king. And so it came to pass that when they were come into Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. Don't you wish you could do that trick? <laughs> you know, you'd be like blindness and then lead someone like in front of a lion. Open his eyes. Ah, you know. <laughs> He says, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And so here they are now, right standing in front of the king. And now we see verse 21, deliverance by kindness. It says, and the king of Israel said unto Elisha when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? This guy's like drooling with his sword clutched, white knuckled in his hand. He's like, "Can can I get them? Can I get them? And he answered and he said, you shall not smite them. Would you smite those whom you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? No, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and then go to their master. And so he prepared great provision for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. Now I read this and I go, wow, this is like unprecedented for Old Testament battle strategy. I mean, here you have the whole host of an enemy army surrendered, brought before you, vulnerable. And he says, no, don't kill them, feed them and then send them home to their master. But look at the outcome of the action. It says that the bands, the raiding bands, came no longer into the coast of Israel. So in other words, an unconventional method yielded a positive outcome. You wouldn't think that kindness would bring forth the solution, but we see that it did. So you say, well, what are you saying to us now? If we follow the thought progression, the king of Syria, picture of Satan, these people, a picture of God's people, are you telling us that we're supposed to be kind to Satan? Is that, is that the application of this thing? No, 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 no. That's not the application. But here's what the application is. Is that you are to be kind to the agents of Satan. See, Satan is the, ad- or the adversary. He's our enemy. But he uses agents in order to get into us. Now, for some of us, that's your boss. Satan is working on your boss, and he's using him to try to get to you. For some of you, it's your spouse. Satan is working on your spouse, and they've actually become the agent of Satan to try to harm or wound or hurt you. For some of you, it might be your kids or a neighbor or someone in your life, you know, an adversary of some some thing. They're the agent of Satan. Now listen, please, don't go to work tomorrow and tell your boss, hey, my pastor said you're the agent of Satan. And don't say that to your wife, you know, either, please, or your husband. Don't say, hey, Pastor Nick said you're the agent of Satan. No, don't, please don't do that. It'll be uh, counterproductive to what you want to do. But what is the fact? Here it is. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul talking about our spiritual fight. He said this word, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In other words, our fight is not against the people that Satan is using to try to upset or offset us. Our real enemy is not the people that he is using, but rather they are the agents that he's using in his attack. He he is the aggressor, they are the instrument. And so the people on your job, the people in your family, they are not your enemy. They're being provoked by your enemy and Satan is lying to them about you and thus he's able to use them against you. Now, what did Jesus tell us where to do? How are we to handle those agents of Satan in our life? He said, turn the other cheek. He said, bless those that curse you. He said, pray for those that despitefully use you. He said, love your enemies. Now, we look at that and we say, that's unconventional. It doesn't make sense. Nobody does that. That's just not the way things work in this world. But what's the result of you and I obeying that command and showing kindness to those people that Satan is seeking to use against us? What it does is that it exposes the lie that Satan has fed them to turn them against you. And thus they realize like, hey, you know, this person really doesn't have it in for me. And maybe they're not as bad as I thought. And what you've done is you've removed them as an arrow from Satan's quiver. He can no longer use them to fight against you. And that's exactly what happened in the text. See, the raiding bands they were the ones that were just like, hey, we hate Israel, we're going to go in and wipe them out. But after this, it says that the raiding bands they came no longer into Israel. They said, hey, what do we have against them? They've got nothing obviously and evidently against us. They fed us and let us go when they had us licked. And so the strategy is deliverance by kindness and it's what jesus teaches us now in every way that god delivers israel whether it's through obedience as we see here in the text whether it's through confidence and prayer as we saw in the text or whether it's through the kindness that we show to those that satan pits against us it's the same way that god delivers us in our day against the things that we face however because we're still in the world and we still have the world and the flesh and the devil looking at us That deliverance never lasts long. And thus, as we look at verse 24, it says, It came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his host, and he went up and he besieged Samaria. Now, when you would set a siege against a city, such as what takes place here, you would surround that city and you would cut off the supply chains. In other words, nothing would go in and nothing would come out. And the intent of a siege was to win the city by starvation and then surrender. If they couldn't get goods or food or water, then eventually they would surrender and give up. And so he sets a siege against them so that they will ultimately surrender to his will. Now, it's interesting to me that Elisha is in the city at this time. It says that when, it says, and there was a great famine in Samaria. And behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. Now, I don't know how bad things have to get to the point where you're like, hey, I'll give you 80 bucks for your donkey's head so that I can make a stew or just a fear factor meal out of some of those parts. I don't even know what they are, but I will give you $80 if you would just let me have the head that's left over after you've eaten the rest of your donkey. You don't eat donkeys. But it was worse. Hey, uh, remember your pet dove? Remember Finchie in the cage? If you would just give me a quart of dove poop, I'll give you five bucks. I mean, it got that bad that they were eating things that you and I would never even think about eating. That's how bad the, the famine was because of the siege that the king of Syria had set against them. Now, it was worse. Notice this. It says in verse 26 that, and as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him saying, help my Lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord do not help thee, when shall I help thee? Out of the barn floor or out of the wine press? So sarcastically, he looks at her and he replies and he says, hey, I don't have anything in my own cupboard and you're asking me to give something to you. And if the Lord's not going to help you, how can I? And so the king said unto her, What aileth thee? What's your problem? And she answered, This woman said unto me, Give thy son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son, and we did eat him. And I said unto her, On the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him, and she has hid her son. Now, How bad is it when you're eating your own children? But that's not the worst part of this story. What's even worse than the fact that they were eating their own children is the fact that this woman's problem is not the death of her son. It's that she didn't get her share of the meal. We ate my son and she didn't put up her son to the thing. And she's more upset about the fact that she didn't get to eat than she is about the fact that two children would lose their lives in the middle of this thing. You think, how did we get here? When you look at this story and you realize what was going on amongst God's people, you stop and you ask the question, you say, how did we get here? Well, God said that in the day that you turn away from me and you turn your back on my commandments, that that's exactly where you're going to find yourself. It's Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's the last words of Moses. After giving them the law and telling them who they were and how they were to live, he said to them that if they would turn away from God, It's on the back of your cross reference sheet. He said, if you would turn away from God, it says that the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, a nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old nor show favor to the young. And he will eat the fruit of your cattle and the fruit of your land until you're destroyed. And he will not leave thee either corn, wine or oil or the increase of your kind or flocks of thy sheep until he has destroyed thee. And he will besiege thee in all thy gates. Until thy high and fenced walls come down wherein you trusted throughout all your land. And he will besiege you in all your gates throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your own body. The flesh of your sons and of your daughters which the Lord your God has given you. In the siege and in the straitness wherewith thine enemy shall distress thee. So the man that is tender among you and very delicate, his eye shall be evil toward his brother and toward the wife of his bosom and toward the remnant of his children, which he shall leave. So that he will not give to any of them the flesh of his children whom he shall eat because he has nothing left him in the siege and in the straitness wherewith thine enemy shall distress you in all your gates. The tender and delicate woman among you, which would not adventure to set the sole of her foot upon the ground for delicateness and tenderness her eye shall be evil toward the husband of her bosom and toward her son and toward her daughter and toward her young one that comes out from between her feet and toward her children which she shall bear. For she shall eat them for want of all things secretly in the siege and in straitness, wherewith thine enemy shall distress thee in thy gates. God said that if you turn from me, that's where you will end up and it didn't take long. Because we see them, they've turned from God and now they're in that place where human life is less important to them than the meal that they're going to receive next and they're willing to kill their children for it. Now this tells us a couple things. First of all, it tells us, and let this speak personally to your heart, that you and I are capable of even the grossest sin. If a woman in Israel is capable of taking her son and eating him for a meal, then it should warn us that under the right circumstances or absent the grace of God, you and I are capable of committing the most wickedness of acts. And it's true. It's true. If it weren't for grace and opportunity, you and I would be the most wicked. And Let that sink in. Without me developing that any further, realize the fact of the matter. That that sin that you think is the worst that you would never do, you are capable of doing it. That's the testimony of the Bible. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things who could know it. That magnifies the grace of God to me in such an incredible way because he sees what's in man. And yet he's still willing to die in our place. It also tells me that what they were doing in their day is no different than what we do in ours. This is no different or no less punishable than what we call legalized abortion in, in our country today. Only in my opinion, I feel like what they were doing is not as bad because they were doing it out of starvation. We do it in the United States of America because it's inconvenient. And, 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 and as long as the United States of America allows for that within its borders, then we deserve every bit of the judgment of God that comes upon this country to make the womb of a woman an unsafe place for human life now i realize that in in a church like ours or even in a room like this and in the day that we live in that there's probably someone here that, that that they look into their past whether it's male or female and that's something that you wear that that's something that that's on your life and you need to know this you need to know that that is not the unpardonable sin you need to understand that that even as bad as it is it is covered under the blood of jesus christ I sat with a woman a couple of weeks ago and she was telling me her story and she shares her her testimony um, publicly. So I'm not betraying any confidence by sharing this with you. But she lived a wild life before she came to Christ. And part of that wild life is that she had three abortions during that time. And eventually she came to a point where she gave her life to Jesus Christ and she was forgiven of her sins, but she could never feel as though she had been forgiven of that one sin. She thought, no, that's murder. I murdered three people and I cannot be forgiven of that. And she carried the guilt of that sin for a long time. And then at one point she was spoken to by a pastor or a friend and they said to her that you need to ask God to forgive you for those things. She said, I can't, he can't forgive me. But she went home and she was feeling the weight and the burden of it and she got down on her knees and she prayed to the Lord and she asked for God's forgiveness for that thing. And she said that the forgiveness and the love of God flooded her soul in a way that she never could have understood. And she said that the Spirit of God spoke to her heart and he said, I forgive you and I love you and those children are with me, two boys and one girl and they love you. You're forgiven and you're loved. And God set a fire in that woman's heart and to this day, she serves the Lord and she battles on the front lines in the fight against taking the lives of unborn children. If we were, for the sake of what it hits in the heart, perhaps, of someone who's done that or fallen into that at some point in their life, if we were to just say, we're not going to talk about that, then we would have to do that for every sin in the entire Bible. So why do I bring it up here at this point? Here's why not just to uh, address it, but it's because our our church partners with CareNet of the Hudson Valley. And they are on the front lines in this battle to fight against it. And I believe that it is God who orchestrates his people in every generation to oppose the evil of their day. And I believe that in any congregation and in our congregation, there are people that God has raised up to fight on the front lines of that battle. And if that's you, and you're one that God has called in that, then I would encourage you to partner with them as well. We see it going on in Israel. We see it in our day. Uh, Well, Joram's response to this, the, the king of Israel at that time, it says in verse 30 that it came to pass that when the king heard the words of the woman, that he tore his clothes and he passed by upon the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. So he rips his clothes open and he exposes the fact that he was wearing sackcloth, meaning sackcloth was a sign of humility, of humbling yourself before God, is that he realized that they were under spiritual judgment. But yet he wasn't repentant. We know that because in verse 31, it says, Then he said, God do so and more also to me, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. He's so angry at what he heard this woman say and the place that they had come to as a nation that he says, I'm gonna, I'm, I, I can't get to God and so I'm gonna get to the next closest thing that I can and I'm gonna cut Elisha's head off because of this. Now, isn't it amazing that people will blame God for their own sin? He's the one that was leading the nation into the sinful condition they were in. And yet now he wants to blame God because of the situation that his sin has caused. If you've ever felt like the king here, where you just want to lash out at God for the things that are going on in your life, I would encourage you to read Psalm 107. That's a great psalm that that expresses the truth about that kind of sentiment. Anger at God because of things that are really uh, your fault. An interesting um, text. So it says, but Elisha, now I love Elisha, he sat in his house and the elders sat with him and the king sent a man from before him But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, See ye how this son of a murderer, Jehoram was the son of Ahab. Remember, he had killed um, Naboth when he wanted to take his vineyard. See how this son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Pin him behind the door when he comes. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? So when the messenger comes, just hold him fast with the door and just wait, because uh, Jehoram, the king, is coming right behind him. And it says that while he yet talked with them, behold, the messenger came down unto him. And he, and that would be the king, so the king comes, and the king said, Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Or why should I expect any help from God? That, that's enough. I've had enough of this whole thing. And so Elisha said, hear ye the word of the Lord. So now Elisha speaks to King Jehoram. Thus saith the Lord, tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. In other words, he's saying that the siege is going to end by this time tomorrow. By this time tomorrow, you'll be able to buy a lot of baking quality flour for a little bit of money, a multiplied amount of food for a fraction of the cost by this time tomorrow. Now that tells me, first of all, that this siege or this famine was isolated to the city because in order for them to get that kind of a price on things, meaning that just outside of the city in the rest of the nation, you could buy things for that price. Meaning that the famine wasn't upon the whole land, it was just upon the capital. And that encourages me. Do you know why? Because it means that God knows how to isolate judgment where judgment is due. And I don't know about you, but when I look at the government, when I look at the Samaria of the United States of America today, or the Washington, D.C., I see the corruption and I see that they have provoked the judgment of God upon our nation. And I oftentimes feel like my hands are tied. Because though I can vote and I can express my opinion in my voice, it seems as though they do whatever they want to anyways, and my hands are powerless to do anything about it. And it encourages me to know that God knows how to judge the heart without affecting the head. So how should we pray in these days? That's how I'm praying. Lord, please help me, but get them, get them out. You know, in fact, you have a chance to do that real soon, you know, uh, at least in some degree. And so he said that the, 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 um, the siege will be over. Then a Lord, verse two, on whose hand the king lead answered the man of God. And he said, behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And Elisha said, behold, you shall see it with your eyes, but you will not eat thereof. Now, Elisha has made a declaration in the word of the Lord. He said that the famine is going to end. The siege is going to end. And tomorrow you'll be able to buy food for pennies on the dollar of what it is today. He gives a word. Now, how that promise is enjoyed and experienced is dependent upon what people do with it. And that's how the rest of this chapter highlights. The rest of this chapter highlights what different people do with this information and how their lives are directly affected by it. First of all, there's this lowercase lord on whose hand the king leans. It says that he scoffed at the promise of God. He said, if God would open windows in heaven, that's impossible. It can't be that that would happen. He assessed the situation and he said, the siege is too strong. Our armies are too weak and we don't have enough resources in this city that even if God would open windows in heaven, that that's even possible. And Elisha says, you'll see it, but you're not going to enjoy it. But the story moves on. Verse three, it says, and there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate, And they said one to another, why sit we here until we die? Now, lepers weren't allowed in the city. And so these guys would be where they were allowed to be, which was at the gate or at the outermost point where they had no contact with citizens. And they rationalized with themselves, hey, we're sitting in this position and we're dying here. We're we're lepers. We're condemned. There's a death sentence on us through our health and we're, we're perishing. And if we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city and we will die there. So if we go into the city to try to buy food, there's no food there and so we'll die in the famine. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore come and let us fall unto the host of the Syrians. Let's defect from Samaria, from the king here, and we'll go into the camp of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall die. What do we got to lose? They realize, hey, we're going to die here. We're going to die in there. Let's fall into the hand of our enemies. Maybe they'll have compassion on us and feed us. And if they kill us, what do we lose? We die no matter what. And so it says that they rose up in the twilight to go out unto uh, the camp of the Syrians. Now, it's interesting to me that these lepers didn't even hear the word that Elisha had spoken. They had no idea that the famine was about to end and that they were about to experience uh, you know, food and provision in that way. But there was no hope for them where they were and, and they weren't going to eat no matter what. And so they asked the question, why should we sit here till we die? And what this represents is four men condemned that were willing to operate in faith. And so they rose up. Now, there is a difference, understand this, that there is a difference between believing and having faith. To believe means that you nod your head. Someone says something and you say, yes, I assent to that. I acknowledge that or I believe it. And it's a confession. It's a profession. You're saying, I believe. But faith is moving your feet. Faith takes action on with it. Now, there's a third category, and that is presumption. And presumption is to move your feet with your eyes closed. And that's not what they're doing here. (laughs) These guys are operating in faith. But the Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so to believe and yet live in hopeless despair for you and me, that's not faith. To say that we believe, but yet never to pray or to seek God, that's not faith. We're acknowledging something, but we're putting no action behind it. To say that we believe, but to not move in obedience to God and to his word, that's not faith. And to say that we believe, but yet never employ the spirit's power to discover what he made us for and his purpose for our lives. That's not faith, but we want to please God in faith. These guys do. They say, why should we sit here till we die? And so they rose up in the twilight and mark that word to go unto the camp of the Syrians. And when they came to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. For the Lord had made a host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said to one another, lo, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. And so God causes a supernatural stirring to take place within their ears. It freaks them out and they get up and they run away. Therefore, verse seven, they arose and they fled in the twilight. Now mark that word. Because what did it say? It said that the lepers arose in the twilight to go and that God now in the same twilight or the same moment sends the noise and causes the whole host of them to flee. Do you see how God responds to faith? God didn't move the Syrians out until the lepers moved in, got up and moved in. So often people say, well, I would do something. I wouldn't sit here until I die if God would just simply open the door or move the way. Listen, no, God says, you move and then I'll open the door. At the same moment they arise, God moves them out. And so they left their tents and their horses, their donkeys, even the camp as it was, and they fled for their life. And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and they did eat and drink and they carried thence silver and gold and raiment, and they went and hid it. And they came again, and they entered into another tent and carried thence also, and they went and hid it. Can you imagine? You go out into the camp, and you're like, oh, we're starving. And you unzip. There's no noise. You unzip one of the tents, and you see a chicken pot pie, <laughs> fresh baked, just sitting there right on the table. And you look left, and you look right, and you're like, come on. For real? Like, the, You go in, you, you take, a, you smell it, you take a bite. You watch the guy. Did he die? You, you know, then you look around and he left his wallet right on the dresser. You know, and so you look inside and there's silver and gold. These guys are like, this is sick. And so they stuff themselves full and then they start spoiling. I mean, four guys in the whole encampment, they just start taking stuff. They go and bury it. They hide it. Then they said one to another, verse nine, we do not well. This is a day of good tidings and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now, therefore, come that we may go and tell the king's household. Now, they realize at this point that this is, this is good news. This is a story of sinners who leave Sin City because they're dying there. And they find life and salvation waiting for them. Literally a table set in the presence of their enemies. And then they realize we can't keep this to ourselves. If we do, then we are going to be doomed because this is a day of good tidings. These guys have found the solution to the siege, to the enemy, to the cannibalism, to the starvation, to the sackcloth, to the anger, to the hopelessness. And they realize we've got to bring the answer to this solution back to our people. Now, What about you and me? We in our lives right now are surrounded by lost and needy and hopeless people. And you and I have the answer. We have the thing that the world needs for the problems that it has. And God has called us to be the channel or the riverbed through which the message or the good tidings of the gospel of grace is brought to the world. There was a a statistic that was put out recently that 80% of people in the United States of America confess or profess that they are Christian people. Now, I don't know what that does in your mind. Maybe you're sitting here and you hear that and you go, oh, good, the church is doing its job. I don't think the world today would look the way the world looks today if 80% of the population of the United States of America was truly walking with the Lord. As you begin to dig a little bit into that number and ask a few questions about those or to those who profess to be Christians, and you begin to ask them, what do you really believe about God, about heaven, about hell, about salvation, about sin, and about repentance, and about a changed life? That number quickly subtracts, and you realize, well, these people profess to be Christians, but they're not actually Christians because what they believe is not in line with what God says it means to be a Christian. I don't know if you read this. This just came out yesterday. The title of the article is Pope Francis, Evolution and the Big Bang Theory Are Real. Listen to this. It says, Pope Francis has told an audience at the Vatican saying God was not a magician with a magic wand. The Pope's remarks on Monday to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences appeared to be a theological break from his predecessor, Benedict, the whatever, the strong exponent of creationism. Listen to this. The Pope said, the big bang that today is considered to be the origin of the world does not contradict the creative intervention of God. On the contrary, it requires it. When we read in Genesis the account of creation, we are in danger of imagining that God was a magician complete with a magic wand that can do all things. But he is not. Do you hear that? The Pope, who leads however many millions of Catholics in the world and in the United States of America, just said that God is not capable of doing all things. Now, when we were kids and someone pretended that they could do all things, we would say, who do you think you are, God? Well, the Pope is saying, even God is not God, because he can't do all things. Now, what does that do to those that profess to be Christians, that call themselves Catholics, but yet they adhere to the teaching that God is not who God said he is? What happens to that 80%? You realize that it isn't even close to 80%, and that the actual number is probably something more like 5 to 10% of the people in this country that are actually saved. Well, the question is, who's reaching them with the message of salvation? The Bible says that God has called us to be the ambassadors of that message to a lost and dying world. That's what we're called to be. We have the answer. What has God done for us? This isn't good what we're doing here, these lepers said. We've got the answer. We've got what everyone else in the city is hungering and needing. God has called us to be that riverbed that brings us. Some of us have dried up. We're a riverbed that's dry. Some of us have frozen up. We've frozen at the mouth like an Arctic river. We have the answer, but we're withholding it from giving it to them. God says he's committed unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Well, verse 10, it says, So they came and they called the porter of the city, and they told them, saying, We came into the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there. Neither voice of man, but horses tied and donkeys tied and the tents as they were. And he called the porters and they told it to the king's house within. And the king arose in the night and he said unto his servants, I will now show you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, are they gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. It's the old abandon the camp trick. And one of his servants answered and said, let some take, I pray thee, five of the horses that remain, which are left in the city. Behold, they are as all the multitude of Israel that are left in it. Behold, I say they are even as all the multitude of the Israelites that are consumed. Let us send and see. Hey, if we send five horses, he has the same rationale as the lepers. If we send five horses and you're right and they kill our horses, we've lost five horses, but at least can we send someone to see? Aren't you thankful for the voice of reason? So they took therefore two chariot horses. King says, all right, you can take two. And the king sent after the host of the Syrians saying, go and see. And so they went after them unto Jordan and lo, all the way was full of garments and vessels, which the Syrians had cast away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. And the people went out and they spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Listen, no matter what God says, you can't stop it from coming to pass. That's true in both the positive and it's true in the negative. What God says is going to come to pass. And the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. Now, I love this. He says, you stand in between the food and the hungry people. And it says that the people trod upon him in the gate and he died as the man of God had said who spoke when the king came down to him. And it came to pass as the man of God had spoken to the king saying, two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. And that Lord answered the man of God and said, now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, might such a thing be? And he said, behold, You shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat thereof. Understand this, church, is that just because you choose not to believe a promise of God doesn't mean that that promise is going to be left unkept. But it might mean that you might not enjoy the benefit of that promise. That's what happens to this man. See, God was going to do something good. God loved even the doubting lowercase lord. But he didn't believe the promise, and thus he didn't receive the benefit of it. And so it fell out unto him, for the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died. And so tonight we see the God who protects his people supernaturally, giving deliverance from their enemies. And we see the God who provides for his people, if the musicians uh, would come. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the word that you've spoken to us through this text. And I know, Lord, that every one of us here tonight were encouraged, that we were strengthened and instructed. We were also challenged and convicted. Lord, as we recognize the one that fights for us is stronger than all of our enemies and adversaries, Lord, we rejoice that we stand in you and that we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. But as we look around at our country and see the state that we are in as a people and even as a church, Lord, our hearts are filled with conviction, Because we realize, Lord, that we're not what we're supposed to be. And I would pray tonight, Lord Jesus, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. That you would help us to see if maybe, perhaps, some of us, Lord, have become like those four lepers. Sitting in a place where we're watching the lamp of the church be extinguished. While we watch the advancement and the besiegement of evil be strengthened. Perhaps tonight, Lord, would there be some of us here that would say, why sit we here till we die? And that tonight, Lord, we would be filled with a new and fresh unction from you. Lord, that we would receive again your Holy Spirit deep within our hearts like we did at the first. That you would reignite a passion in us for your word and for your truth. That you would remind us again of the lost and dying world that's going to hell that you would touch our lips with a coal from the altar like you did for Isaiah, and that you'd send us forth with a message. And you'd birth a conviction in our hearts, Lord, that we would say, here I am, send me. And so, Lord, awaken us personally, individually. Awaken our church and awaken our nation. And help us, Lord, to be the bride of Christ, which you've intended us to be. And may we ever take you at your word, O Lord, for without faith it is impossible to please you. So strengthen us by your Holy Spirit and let your word penetrate us deeply. And we ask it tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.